Got 20 minutes? Then you have time for a Bible study. Jesus, name above all names, I worship you. Jesus, you're worthy to be praised, I worship you. Welcome to another episode of 20-Minute Bible Studies. Romans 10:17 says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Over the next several minutes, you're going to hear an important message directly from God's Word and have your faith and knowledge increased. All you have to do is listen. Now, here are your teachers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. I'm Andy Baylock. And I'm Jordan Pine. Let's get started. A common phrase is, actions have consequences. In the Bible, especially the Old Testament, actions have generational consequences. A forefather's righteousness or unrighteousness can have a lasting impact on his future generations. This is one answer to the famous African boy question, if you've heard this one before. Now, what about a person, for example, an African boy, who grew up in the middle of a remote country with a different religion, who doesn't know about the gospel? It's not their fault, right? It's the culture, etc. Well, as Americans, we tend to think about these things individually, but does God see things that way? Well, let's listen now to the Word of God. A reading from the Psalms, and then the Gospel of Matthew. Psalm chapter 103, verses 17 and 18. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember His precepts to do them. Matthew chapter 27, verses 22 to 25. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. That was two readings, one from Psalm 103 and the other from Matthew chapter 27. Before we get into a topic, we typically follow the SPACE method. As our longtime listeners know, SPACE is an acronym standing for Speaker SP, Audience A, Context C, and Explanation E. It guides us in the proper order for interpreting scripture. Regarding the Psalms, we know the speaker is King David, and the audience is the nation of Israel over which he ruled. The audience is also all of us throughout time who would read his divinely inspired songs, including us right now. So Psalms is essentially a book of spiritual songs written for those with spiritual ears. As for the Matthew reading, the speaker and audience are given. This is Pilate speaking to the chief priests and elders of the Jews, representing the entire nation, about what to do with the one who was claiming to be their Messiah. The context is the Jewish leaders had just been given a chance to select Jesus for a customary pardon, 
but they choose a guilty prisoner instead named Barabbas. Meanwhile, Pilate wanted to pardon Jesus because his wife had had a terrible dream that revealed that he was innocent. But the Jews want Jesus dead, so Pilate washes his hands of the matter. He goes on to pardon Barabbas and send Jesus away to be flogged and crucified. Now that we know the speaker, audience, and context of our scripture readings, let's get into the explanation and what it is that we wanted to talk about today. The first thing I want to mention is that generational consequences began with Adam and Eve. When they ate the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, they cursed themselves and every generation that would follow from them, including us today. We might ask, is it fair that we're born with sin? Well, another question we could ask, is it fair that God had to send his only son to suffer and die for the disobedience of his creation? Generational consequences seem unfair, but understanding how they work will help a little bit. Okay, Jordan. So let's go on to another point, the deadly disease analogy. So bear with me here. Imagine a disease, a virus that not only kills, but it alters the DNA. It kills the host slowly by significantly limiting his or her lifespan. Now, if that person was meant to live until the age 90, imagine that they die at 45. Not only that, this disease alters the DNA so that it gets passed on to the host's offspring. So then any children the host has will also die at age 45. Any children the children have, it's the same thing and on and on. So in other words, contracting this disease has generational consequences. And we have to remember sin is such a disease because when Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree, they ate contaminated fruit. They contracted the disease of sin which altered the DNA and had generational consequences. So let's just forget about 90. I mean, realistically, they were meant to live forever. But the sin disease made them mortal, cutting short their lifespan. Yeah, and it got progressively worse, Andy, so that their future generations, us, typically don't even live past a single century. If you recall, you know, in the early days, Methuselah, people like that, might live hundreds of years. Methuselah was in the 900s somewhere, and you know, even guys like Abraham, it was said, lived to a couple hundred years old. So um, as time has gone on, it's got worse and worse to where an eternal immortal being now only lives usually less than a century. And, you know, in this metaphor that we're using, what was the death of Jesus Christ? Well, that was a cure, an antidote, right? Now, any child of the original hosts, Adam and Eve, can take something that after they die will bring them back to life in the original body that God gave Adam and Eve a body free of the disease that their parents gave them. Good analogy. Now, if someone develops a cure for a deadly disease and people don't take that cure and they die and they don't come back to life, is that the fault of the person who developed the cure? And what if the person who developed the cure did so at great personal cost, even to the point of sacrificing his own life? That's what Jesus' death on the cross represents. Yeah, Jordan, Romans 8, 1-2 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Is it rightful to be ungrateful or bitter toward that person, meaning Jesus, if you die without taking his cure, even though it was offered for free with nothing required in return? That's a great question. Yeah, Andy. So moving past sin, we also have curses of God. And it's important to mention this. Unlike the disease of sin, which Adam and Eve contracted by their actions, curses represent God's action or his justice. And our first scripture reading speaks of God's justice in a positive sense. It speaks of God's blessings. Let's go ahead and look at that again. If you could read Psalms 103, 17 to 18. Sure. 
But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. One thing to remember, Jordan, that there is an opposite to this. It's a corollary, and those are God's curses. Yeah, and we see those in verses like Numbers 14, 18, which reads, The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving inequity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. And there's another reading in Exodus, Andy, where we see both his blessing and his curse. And this comes from the second commandment. Yeah, so I have that up. It's Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. And it reads, You shall not make for yourself an idol, or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And here's the key point of this. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Yeah, by the way, God hates idolatry, and here's why. Idolatry equals adultery in God's eyes. Those words sound the same, and they're very similar in concept. For example, Israel is called the adulterous wife of God for this reason. You can see that in Ezekiel 16.32. You know, the Israelites were constantly worshiping idols, a.k.a. committing adultery against God, who demanded monogamy of them. And interestingly, we can take this one step further. Why did God take King David's firstborn son of Bathsheba? Generational consequences of sin is the answer. King David committed adultery, and the child was the result. And that's in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Thanks, Jordan. And then that brings us to our second scripture reading, which involves a self-imposed curse, if you will. And that's in Matthew 27, 22 to 25. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. And he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. So all the people answered in unison, His blood is on us and on our children. Yeah, so you can see the way we call that a self-imposed curse because they basically cited the Old Testament in cursing themselves for this decision they were making. That's how strongly they wanted him dead. Sure. And as you mentioned earlier, Andy, you know, Pilate wanted nothing to do with it because, you know, obviously the Romans were pagans and, and they were very into um, dreams and, and signs and God had come to Pilate's wife right. and given her this terrible dream, like, don't mess with that man, that innocent man. And she went to her husband and said, whatever you do, have nothing to do with that man because we'll be cursed. They, they very much believed in that kind of thing. But in a sense, you have to kind of consider, you know, in hindsight, it probably wasn't a dream from God. It was probably a dream from the enemy because the enemy at that point wanted to do anything he could to prevent Jesus dying on the cross, which was the purpose of his visit to die for the sins of the world. Interesting point. I never thought about it that way. But yes, that, that's probably true because ultimately... What did Satan want? He wanted Pilate to wash his hands and allow the crucifixion to go forward. Okay, so yeah, um, you know, all the people here, by the way, represents all the nation of Israel rejecting their Messiah. That's important to understand that, you know, the characters you see in this story actually representing the entire nation of Israel because, as we talked about before, prior to um, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when, when uh, salvation became individual, 
Salvation was national. Right. You, you became saved by joining God's people, which was the nation of Israel. So these people um, calling for Jesus to be crucified, rejecting their Messiah, are representing the entire nation of Israel, which is very important from a prophetic standpoint. Yeah, and these people obviously are the Sanhedrin. It's the Pharisees, it's the Sadducees, right. which Israel as a nation trusted them as leadership for political reasons, for religious reasons. So it's basically whatever they said, we support. Right. So for them, this was beyond the rejection of a blessing, which is, you know, the cure. It was a rejection of their king, a rejection of heaven on earth, because if Christ had become king at that time, he would have brought the kingdom of heaven right then and there, essentially heaven on earth. And worse, they invoke the curse that we read about from the Old Testament again, one of generational consequences, and put it on themselves. Some suggest this is the ultimate reason for, for example, worldwide anti-Semitism. Some even say for the Holocaust. And whether you believe that or not, what we do know is that Jesus died for sins anyway. Yeah, Jonah, so whether you believe that or not, what we know is that Jesus died for sins anyway. And it's important to remember, grace is a gift. Salvation is absolutely free. And God's blessings are also generational. Yeah, good point. You know, Andy, as you know, I'm Jewish because my mother is Jewish. Yet I feel I bear no curse because of my ancestors and them rejecting Jesus. And, you know, if you take that further, I believe it was my mother's righteousness the fact that she accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior as a teenager, that is in part the reason that my life has been so blessed. So I, I can look at that generational consequences two different ways. And, you know, as a generational consequence of her godliness, for example, and my father's as well, obviously, he's a believer, I get to enjoy all of God's blessings, his unmerited favor, and I feel that I also get to, I got an advantage in life by being raised by two Christian parents. So you can see the, the blessing and the curse side of things, right? So just because my forefathers on my mother's side um, did this thing that, that they brought on themselves a generational curse, that doesn't mean that, as you're pointing out, that you know, all, all Jewish people, for example, are doomed. Again, salvation's individual now, and, uh, and Jesus died for the sins of everyone, including the generations of those, of those Jewish leaders who ultimately condemned Christ. And like I said before, bringing it around to even shorter-term things, we can look at our parents if they're if they're Christians and believers, and raised or even raised us with a good, honest fear of God, which you've also spoken about, um, as giving us sort of a generational edge. Amen. Amen. Well, glory goes to God for everything, the position that we're in. That probably goes for all Christians. So, in finality, what is the everyday takeaway from today's lesson? I think we could bring up a couple of good points. Sin can have generational consequences, and we've seen that, right, throughout the Scripture and also in a great point that you made in the position that you're in now because of, you know, the choices that your parents made. Also, righteousness can also have generational consequences. You know, it's, it's something to be said about how we live and the righteous way that we live that even though it's, it's difficult in this day and age to stay righteous and stay holy when there's nothing but sin surrounding us, but... The key of this ministry is to give our listeners hope to know that God has a special reward and a blessing that cannot even be described for those who are righteous and holy and strive for that. Right, so sin can have generational consequences, so can righteousness, so let's not take either lightly. You know, Andy, we often talk about good works and bad works, and we know that each of us, each of us Christians, will be judged individually for these works. That's 2 Corinthians 5.10. And we also know that these works can equate to certain levels, like, for example, gold, silver, precious stones that will survive judgment fire and earn us individual rewards. That's 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. 
And we also know that bed works equate to wood, hay, straw that will burn up, leaving only the fireproof foundation, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But all that speaks of the long term and the next life, whereas I think today's lesson and today's takeaway speaks about something much shorter impacting this life here on earth. Yeah, Jordan, here on earth, there's another reason to be righteous and produce good works, and it could definitely impact your family and any future generations who will live on this earth before the end of the age comes or the rapture. So absolutely, actions have consequences, and they could have consequences for your family, for sure. And, you know, it's just another reason to, like we often like to quote, Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Amen. Okay, folks, so we have a little bit of bonus time today, a few minutes here, and like we often like to do, we have a listener question from our sister Amy, and she writes, can you comment on Gehenna and the Catholic concept of purgatory? Both are based on God's great mercy to the spiritually saved and are concerned with the process of purification slash sanctification of the soul. I believe the Catholic faith does not dictate a place in so much as a process. They also by virtue of the faithful dead being held in a place or state of purification, pray for the dead. And again, that's Amy asking us a question. Yeah, Andy, so here's what I wrote back to Amy. I wrote, yes, I believe there are some parallels between Gehenna and the Catholic concept of purgatory. However, I'm not sure I would classify Gehenna as, quote, mercy to the spiritually saved or concerned with the process of purification slash sanctification of the soul. And here's why I wrote that. You know, the former statement mercy to the spiritually saved, to me, that implies that bad works could send the spiritually saved to hell, if not for God's mercy of placing them into Gehenna instead. You know, but as the hymn says, and we know Jesus paid it all, and no works, whether before or after death, are required to be spiritually saved. So that concept, I don't think, is jives with what we know about Scripture. We know that, that purification and sanctification definitely happens during our life, Andy. You know, it's the sanctification of the soul, that ongoing salvation of the soul. But I don't think it's clear that that's what happens after death. And, you know, I, I can see where um, Catholics or Sister Amy might have reached that hypothesis as to why, like, why does Gehenna even exist? It's a thousand-year place, as we know, um, where, where Christians, um, you know, that, that failed, failed to do the proper works have lost their inheritance. Uh, are sent. Well, we do know, according to Scripture, obviously, Gehenna existed way before the concept of purgatory. Right. So, you know, it kind of, you know, outdates purgatory, the concept for, you know, maybe at least a thousand years. Yeah, I, I guess that what I was thinking of more is, you know, wh- why do these people go to uh, Gehenna for a thousand years? Like, what is the point of being in Gehenna? Is it just punishment? And, you know, essentially, you know, weeping and gnashing of teeth torture. That's a good question. Or, or is there a refinement that goes on there, which I think is maybe what Sister Amy was trying to get at. So that's an interesting thought. We don't really have anything from the Bible to tell us what the purpose of Gehenna is, if it's a refinement or if it's preparing them to be— because, you know, we know after the thousand years, those people will be restored, every tear will be wiped away, Correct. and they will exist and enter into the kingdom of the Father. So We don't know exactly what it is, but we know what, what it's not. Right. And it's not the place where Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning on the earth. During the thousand years. Correct. Right. So, so they're going to be restored in some way, so we don't know if that Gehenna, thousand years in Gehenna, was part of a refinement or not. So I, I kind of see where, where she or perhaps the Catholic theology is going there. In a sense, though, I kind of agree with her because it's kind of a timeout, right? We know that there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, you know, I guess the concept of a timeout for a kid is, okay, you know, kids are playing in, in the room and that specific child 
let's say, bit another child. And all right, we're giving him a two-minute two timeout to think right. about what he did wrong. In this case, you know, God knows what the time, the proper time scale should be for us to learn our lesson, and evidently it's a thousand years. Okay, so yeah, so that's all a good point. The only thing I want to point out is that there's a problem with chronology, right? So purgatory, my understanding at least, is that it's where you go now in the church age, let's say, when you die, if you're not quite baked, or God's not sure whether you're good or bad, which way you're going, whereas Gehenna, we know, is in the future after the Bema seat. So chronologically, they, they don't line up and they can't be the same thing or even similar because Gehenna is definitely not happening now. It's happening after the Bema Seat, which is in the future after the rapture. And that's what I pointed out to Sister Amy. Sure. And finally, Sister Amy mentioned that the Catholic faith does not dictate a place for purgatory in particular. And I just wanted to point out that, you know, Gehenna definitely is a historic place, a geographic place, and a metaphoric place. And you know, we get into a lot of those details in a four-part series that we did of the old radio show, The Old Lessons, MOTK, Mysteries of the Kingdom. And anyone who has no idea what we're talking about right now, or was maybe their curiosity was piqued and they want to get more in-depth on Gehenna, um, you can find those episodes on our website at motk.org. That's motk.org. And you want to start with episode 110, which is titled Punishment for the Saved. And that's our lesson, which means we have just a few minutes left for Get 20, Give 20. Get 20 is our reminder that you can get a 20-minute Bible study anytime you like by visiting our website. We archive all lessons and make them available for free at 20minutebiblestudies.org. You can listen online or download them for later, or even subscribe to the podcast version and have new lessons automatically delivered to your favorite smart device. Even more important, our website is the place where you can join in on our Bible studies by sharing your comments and asking any question you might have. We do have a growing Facebook community as well and a discussion forum. While you're on the site, you should also sign up for email alerts so we can let you know when new lessons have been added to the site. And when you sign up for our email alerts, our first email back to you will include a link to a special series that we've titled 10 Mind-Blowing Things You Didn't Know Were in the Bible. It's an eye-opening set of Bible lessons and it's our little thank you for joining our online community. And it's all online at 20minutebiblestudies.org. Or if you don't want to type so much, 20mbs.org. We'll get you there much faster. Moving on to Give 20, this is our special initiative to reach as many spiritually hungry Christians as we can. We know so many Christians today are struggling to make time to study God's Word. And maybe they're feeling guilty that they aren't often able to do that. We all know studying the Word of God is vital to our spiritual growth, yet it can be so hard sometimes to find a good study group and then attend that group on a regular basis. That's why we created 20-Minute Bible Studies. Everyone can find 20 minutes for God, and now, with this audio program, that's all Christians will need. They can listen to a Bible study whenever and wherever they like. The Give 20 initiative is your chance to participate in this great ministry and receive the special blessings that come from spreading God's Word. By giving just $20 per month, you can help us create more lessons and reach more believers than ever before. Plus, we pledge that every cent you contribute, every cent, will go directly toward recording and broadcasting more lessons like the one you heard today. And since our ministry is an official nonprofit registered with the government, your donation is also fully tax-deductible. To join our Give 20 initiative, visit 20mbs.org and just click Donate.
And finally, 20-Minute Bible Studies is a ministry of Mysteries of the Kingdom, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating Christians in preparation for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you like what you heard today and want to get deeper into God's Word, we strongly recommend you visit the website of Mysteries of the Kingdom, MOTK.org. Thanks for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study. Special thanks to the family of Pastor Gary T. Whipple, to the Abundant Life Worship Center for the music for our show, and to Tom Pine for our scripture reading. I'm Steve Zioli, and until next time, may the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Mysteries of the Kingdom Incorporated.